Welcome to episode 143 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Righto guys, so welcome along to episode 143 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. It's actually only Bevan James Isles here today because we're pre-recording the show because we're taking some time off. So this week we have an interview with Craig Alexander that we did in early 2008. It's going to be pretty interesting listening to it, seeing how he's going to plan the year ahead, thinking about winning Kona, which he obviously went on to do. But before I put that on, we have our sponsors and they are Coffees of Hawaii for the world's best coffee. Just... Get it? Uh, Trybuys.com. Remember, I've got great sale on at the moment. It's the best time to get your triathlon gear. And lastly, Athlinks.com. And we're going to talk about some of the innovations they're doing with the results page at the moment on the website. So I'm going to put on Craig Alexander right now, and I'll see you at the end of the show. Anyhow, on today's show, we're very happy. We've been promising this for um, a few weeks. We're going to have Craig Alexander on the show, the 2006 World 70.3 Champs of 2007 runner-up at the Hawaii Ironman on debut, so um, we're very happy to have Craig on the show, and welcome along, how are you? Very very good, thanks, thanks for having me. No worries. Uh, it's obviously been a pretty special last couple of years for you, I mean, um, and, and obviously culminating in, in perhaps Kona this year. How the hell was that day? I mean, just maybe just talk us through your day from start to finish. Did it, did it pretty much go exactly to plan, or, or any mishaps along the way? Um, I think all in all I had a good day, you know, I, people talk about having highs and lows in the Ironman and I, I must say I, I was pretty steady all day, I didn't really feel too bad until probably the last half hour of the race, but um, you know, I prepared prepared really well and, and, and trained very hard, you know, expecting the worst, obviously I've watched the race for a long time and um, the conditions over there are notorious for being obviously hot, humid and windy, so I was expecting the very worst of all conditions and um, anything less than that was going to be sort of a benefit I guess and uh, <clears throat> I mean we had a we had a hot day I don't think it was as windy as it could have been but um, I think I was, I was pretty well prepared for whatever the island was going to throw up and yeah I just had a good day you know I, I think I'd done my homework pretty well and, and things fell into place for me. Is, is Hawaii always sort of been what you got what got you into the sport or is it uh, was it more so sort of the Olympics or, or what sort of in the early days was was this sort of the, the pinnacle for you? Um, I think in the early days, I was just happy to to do to you know to be doing triathlon, and I'd always wanted to be a professional athlete. I'd played soccer for twelve years, and um, then I had a hernia operation, and I had to take six months off sport, and just started running to lose weight. So I, I think that my first sort of point of contact with the sport was um, in '94 when Greg Welsh won in Hawaii, yeah. and it got a lot of media back home. And I pretty much started in the sport maybe twelve months after that, and. Uh, Initially, it was obviously when you start in a triathlon, you don't go straight to an Ironman. Well, most people don't. Some people do, but I um, <clears throat> yeah, I just started in the shorter distance stuff. And um, at that time, as you know, there was I, I guess drafting was starting to come into the sport, and the, it had just been admitted into the Olympics. But um, I think it was a good time to start because a lot of races were still non-drafting, so you had to sort of hone all your skills, um, drafting and non-drafting. You had to compete in both style of races and. Also, you had to do different distances. You know, I doubled between sprint distance up to half Ironman. So um, I think it makes you a well-rounded athlete. But uh, I always wanted to do the Ironman. Yeah. 
And I guess a lot of people might not know a lot about those early days in triathlon. In, in Australia, it was it was going off, wasn't it? You, you had those the Grand Prix tours that probably a lot of people don't know about these days. And it was uh, were, were people making a reasonable living in Australia, or was it still you know you had to do a few other things on the side to to get by? You know, I think it was it was definitely sort of the glory days of triathlon in Australia. You had well, I guess in the US they had the big four of Mark, Dave, Scott. And uh, the two Scots, Scott Molina and Scott Tinley. In Australia, we had the big three of uh, Greg Welsh, Miles Stewart, and Brad Bevan. And um, mm. that was on the men's side. And obviously, we had a few ladies who were doing pretty well as well. So, But we had that series, which was a nationally televised series. It had great prize money. And um, it certainly wasn't at the level of cricket or football, but I guess we were sort of the envy of every second-tier sport in the country because we had a, a, a huge corporate sponsor. We had nationally televised races that were on live. Um, you know, we had a pretty good series. We were, we were on a good thing there for a while, and the prize money was really good. Yeah. And obviously being on TV and, and the media coverage we were getting, the sponsorship opportunities were there as well. So, well, What did it slip? What happened to it? <clears throat> Man, I, I, think, I think the Federation has a lot to answer for. Um, they totally wanted to go down the path of, of the Olympics, uh, which was fine. Um, but I don't think they serviced their major sponsors well. Um, particularly in the later years, Accenture, who was sponsoring the series towards the, the end. And, I mean, I think the, the great draw of, of the Grand Prix series or, or the National Series was that it, it was a variety of different formats. You know, we had triple super sprints, we had enduro formats, a couple of Olympic distance, a couple of sprint distance, and it was just exciting. It was formatted for telly. It was exciting. You had different formats. You now you do a swim, bike, run, then you do a run, bike, swim, and that. Now we're just changing the formats a little bit. Yeah. And it was interesting, and I think... The national coach, he, he wanted to scrap all that and just have all Olympic distance two-hour races, which you know can be boring, particularly when they're on flat courses and you know the pace is not on on the bike often. Yeah. And I mean it's boring to watch for an hour and a half before they get to the run. So. Oh, come on, Bevan, turn that bloody phone off, Jesus. Uh, it was. Um, I remember watching those in, enduro races. They were fantastic. They used to have these things where you do a sprint. And then you'd eliminate the slow people, then you'd do another one, and you just keep eliminating them. Really? Down. So that's me standing. Yeah, it was. It was really good TV to watch. We used to get a bit of it over here, and um, yeah, I, I really hope um, somebody maybe takes the initiative and, and brings that back. Um, Mate, I agree 100%. I think it's there's a huge market for it in the sport. As an athlete, they were great races to do. They were unbelievably difficult, particularly the triple enduros where they break an Olympic distance race down into three that they ran concurrently back to back, and. Um, and they, made, they got you very fit. Like, I remember all the Australians used to come off that series and, and hit the first couple of World Cups or the first few international races and, and be in really good form. And so would the Kiwis. Like, Hamish Carter used to come across and Bevan and Chris. Yeah. And all those guys would get in great form using using that sort of series as a springboard to, to take off into the international season. And um, so it worked on a number of levels. Obviously, you could make a living or a decent living as well as getting in great shape for, for the Northern Hemisphere summer. But... Um, they just sort of let it slip now, and unfortunately, triathlon doesn't get much coverage back here at all anymore. Mm. Hey, um, John Barry often talks about you know the time in France, and or he often talks about Bevan actually, Bevan Doherty in France, how he kind of did his work as the, the apprentice, maybe as a triathlete. And uh, you you spent two seasons in France as well. How important was that for your athletic development those early years? Yeah, I think it was very important. You know, I I was never a junior. I when I started, juniors was twenty and under, and I started as a twenty-two year old. So. Yeah. I wasn't like a lot of the other guys from Australia, like Greg Bennett and Craig Walton and McCormack, who'd come up through the junior ranks and sort of been come from single sports before that, either running or swimming. I'd come from soccer and went straight into triathlon, and um, 
obviously not coming through any program, I you had to you're on your own really. You had to learn off your own bat, and I think it was very important those years because <clears throat> it honed your your skills as a triathlete. As I said, even I think my first year was '97, and I'd only been doing the sport two years then. Drafting was starting to come into it, so a lot of the big races in France, the Grand Prix races, were draft legal, but still a lot of the other sort of classic races, the, the big money races, were non-drafting. So if you wanted to make a decent living, you, you had to sort of be well-rounded and, and <clears throat> be a consistent triathlete in all three disciplines, I guess, is the best way to put it. And, but it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't uh, easy back in those days, was it? I mean, in terms of making a living, it was uh, some pretty tough times sort of getting getting by year by year? Totally. I mean, I think, obviously, triathlon's not the PGA Golf Tour. and <laughs> I mean, but, but, yeah, exactly. I remember going to France that first time. I think I was there. 20 weeks and I raced 19 times in, in the really? 20 weeks so wow. it was a lot of racing and some weekends you'd back up and do two two races um, but I think it, it taught you to be hungry and it gave you that little bit of mongrel I think that you needed that I mean I was a qualified physiotherapist I'd, I'd graduated in, in early 97 and so I had my ticket I could, I could have worked as a physio so in my own mind I had to justify what I was doing yeah. um, and I mean there was never any question if I couldn't make it as a triathlete, I was, I was going to be going back to Australia and getting a job. So um, I don't think it was the fear of that that drove me, but that was the reality of the situation. You know, I, you didn't have Would that I? support network behind you. And I mean, it taught you to race hard and race often. And I mean, those years were good. I, I didn't do too bad. I, I raced a lot. I guess the body took a bit of a hiding, but <clears throat> I mean, I came home with a deposit for our first house from one of those seasons. So, yeah. And I made a lot of good friends all along the way. So I think it was all part of the journey. And, Certainly, I don't regret those years. They were some of the best years of my career. Have you uh, had any more practice at putting in dislocated fingers since those times? <laughs> yeah, Joey, that was that was. I was yeah, I was actually only thinking of that the other day. I was having a ride, and um, we were riding along this bike path, and there were a couple of posts sticking up, and that took me back to that infamous day when uh, <clears throat> John ran into a post. And, um, me being the physio, I had to pop them back in. I don't know what, what kind of job did I do. I think I did all right, didn't I? He broke his finger, didn't he? Broken. <laughs> Although the next time I saw you, you're in this huge aluminium cast for about three weeks. <laughs> little, little thing, I wind my finger up. So <laughs> people are birdie. Oh, it was all good days. But I mean, another story. I mean, yeah, it was great to be over there with, with Craig and, and Bevan and see those guys develop. And it was bloody hard, you know. And I think it's a, a step a lot of guys are missing these days. To give you an example. One weekend, I was always the cherry picker. I said, right. We're going to try and find the money races where there's not going to be many people. Yeah. And one afternoon we thought, right, we're going to drive for this race. And it was about a bloody 10-hour drive across the country. We got in the van Saturday afternoon, turned up at this place at 2 o'clock in the morning, slept in the van for a couple of hours, yeah. did the race, and then drove home. And um, I think it was some of those experiences that really, I don't know, you might be able to elaborate, sort of hardened you guys up and, and really taught you to appreciate what you get when, when you are at the top but really understand those hard times in the early years. Mate, you hit the nail right on the head, I think. You appreciate it more, and I, I only think you get to the top if you've had those times. Like I see a lot of the young guys these days, and they miss out on all that. The federation wants to baby them and throw money at them, and <clears throat> I think it's an important part of your development just to develop the psychology of it and the toughness that you need. And I mean, they were fun times. Where I mean, I guess we weren't laughing at the time. I remember some of those trips you're talking about. I think one of the races was Bugilef or something <laughs> like that. Was called. <laughs> remember that one? We, yeah, we drove across and. Um, we we got there at two or three, and then we slept for four hours, and then in the back of the van, yeah. and then raced, and then jumped in the car and drove home. So it was like twenty hours of driving. We were only there for four hours, yeah. but um, they definitely toughen you up mentally. And 
it's a hard sport at, at any distance. It's a hard sport. It's a hard grind. The training and um, I think that's an important part of your development. If if you miss that in the early years, then so so you do feel that the young athletes out there are missing out on that. If you know if they're not really taking it, was that part of them there for them to take now? I, I definitely think they're missing. I think it's a huge part of your development. The just the whole mental development and the physical development too. You've got to you've got to race hard and often when you're younger and you hone your craft like like you know in any walk of life you got to learn your skills properly but i think sport is as much mental as it is physical and mm. you know that that definitely toughens you up mentally and, and just works on the psychology of it and how, and how tough the sport can be and i think you do appreciate it more now i mean obviously we start a lot of nice hotels and things these days but i never forget those days and never take it for granted it was all part of my development and, and they were necessary days and, and very good good fun days you know very really enjoyable times so it's uh I think it's all part of the learning curve, as I said, in any walk of life, whether it be business or sport. You need to do your apprenticeship and hone your skills. And, and part of that in triathlon is your physical skills and your mental skills. And um, just, I think, the discipline and the mental application that's required to get to the top. And I do think a lot of the times now, <clears throat> with all, you know, obviously triathlon's progressing. It's still only 30 years old, but we're getting to the age of sports scientists and you know, carbon fibre and ceramic bearings and, and all of this stuff, which is great. It, it's making you know everyone go faster, but I think it's still important to, to develop sort of a tough underbelly that you need. You know, you need to be resilient, you need to be tough, and you need to be able to bounce back. And um, it's all good to have sports scientists running around with heart rate monitors and everything else, but you also need to develop the psychology of you know just being resilient and, and being able to bounce back. Mm-hmm. So back in those days, you were yeah you, know, you were do, you're doing really well um, at Olympic distance races. You're dabbling, still dabbling a bit in the, in the World Cups, and, and you were actually I remember doing very well at half Ironmans. At what sort of stage did you sort of I don't know, maybe decide that the Olympic dream wasn't the right thing for you, and you sort of changed your focus a little bit in terms <coughs> of uh, going to non-drafting races and, and maybe focusing a bit more on the half Ironmans? Yeah, I think I mean I never I guess immersed myself in the World Cups like a lot of guys. A lot of the guys like Robbo and Macca who were trying to make the Olympics were doing seven or eight World Cups a year, every year. And I think in my whole career I only did 13 or 14. So um, I, I, I don't know. I just I wanted to be, I always wanted to be well-rounded. So I always tried to throw in a few halves each season and a few different things. That being said, obviously the Olympics is every athlete's dream. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me the, the change in focus really came in... <clears throat> Well, in 2000, obviously everyone thought Greg, Brad and Miles would go. And um, I guess that was my first real lesson in the sport that anything can happen because Greg obviously had to retire about four or five months before the trial with his heart condition. Brad got hit by a car the day before the first selection race and Miles had tonsillitis. So none of them did the selection races. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to me that was an eye-opener. You know, you never say never in any sport or in sport or in life, really. Anything can happen. And... So I sort of threw myself into it after that and I made the world team for Edmonton. I got second at Mooloolabar and, um, <clears throat> and I made the, uh, the, the squad. They had a train-on squad for the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. There were seven of us on the squad and from that seven they were going to pick three in a reserve. And I think in 2002, at the beginning of the year, I came down with a chicken pox about a week before the first selection race, which was in Canberra. And uh, I had to have 10 weeks off. Obviously, it's a pretty debilitating virus to get, especially as an adult. And um, I had 10 weeks off, so I missed both the selection races, and which meant I missed the Commonwealth Games. And they were also doubling as the selection races for the World Champs that year, so I missed Worlds and Commonwealth Games. 
And as the way the criteria was written, that meant I couldn't really get a World Cup start for that year either, for the whole of 2002, because I wasn't on the world team. So I, I sort of felt like I'd been hung out to dry a little bit by the Federation. I was, I was jumping through the hoops for them to try and make the Commonwealth Games, and then I got sick, um, through no fault of my own, really. And I was just sort of hung out to dry for 12 months, couldn't get a World Cup start. So that's when my focus really changed, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to America. That's where I wanted... I've sort of always wanted to head over there eventually anyway and as I said earlier my first sort of port of call with triathlon was seeing Welsh win the Ironman in 94 and you know at that time triathlon was getting a lot of coverage in Australia whenever he or McKeeley would win Chicago or St Croix those races would be in the newspaper and I remember watching St Croix on TV so I thought in 02 you know I was I was going to jump away from the World Cups and, and get over to the US and that's what I did so that was sort of I wouldn't say that was the point I turned my back totally on the Olympics, but I just thought, you know, I'm a professional athlete. I was sort of in my late 20s, and I, I want to make a living. So I'm, I'm going over there, and that's what I did. Nice. Um, and I remember back in the, the days in France, you were, you were largely your own athlete in terms of um, you didn't appear to have a coach uh, in the background. It, I, did it stay that way for, for a long time? And, and, but I've recently seen you've, you've hooked up with Chris Carmichael. Has is, is that been... Um, were, you, were you coached before? And, and how has the change affected you recently? Yeah, I've, I've never had a coach until I, I teamed up with Chris. And I only teamed up with Chris in August this year. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I just felt like, you know, I'd been to university and I had a physiotherapy degree. So I'd done a year or two of physiology. And that's not to say I thought I knew everything, but I remember in the early days... Um, in 97 I got called into the Australian team they had a camp and I went to the camp and I was just listening to there was a whole lot of different coaches down there and half of them I thought didn't know what they were talking about so <laughs> I thought at the time you know I'm not I'm not going to you know put the blinkers on and think I know everything I'll, I'll listen to all the advice I'm given but I'm not going to take it as gospel or whatever you know just because someone's a triathlon coach and um, you know I was fortunate enough that I got I got to train with Welshy pretty early on and you know, a lot of the guys, Ben Bright, a lot of the guys who are, you know, world famous and had been winning big races and Craig Walton and and these were just in my early years. I got to train with those guys and, you know, I guess that was probably the best lesson because I, I saw there were no secrets. Everyone was pretty much doing a similar thing, you know. Obviously, there's more than one way to skin a cat, but everyone's program was pretty similar. I did a stint up on the Gold Coast and trained with Miles for a little bit and, you know, the nuts and bolts of everyone's program was pretty similar. Yeah. So pretty early on, I, I sort of got a feel for the fact that, you know, there were no secrets. It was just you had to be consistent in your training and you had to do certain key sessions each week. And um, but that, that being said, you know, I still, well, you know, I still thought if you know, a good coach comes along, um, I, you know, I wouldn't be adverse to, to training with them. But <clears throat> I seemed to progress pretty rapidly and I was getting good results. So I just stuck with that. And uh, But then this year in uh, August, Chris contacted me and... Um, it was kind of good timing, really, too, because I was just about... The first week in August, I started my specific tone of prep, so I, and I felt that, you know, out of all the... I guess if anything could let me down in Kona, it'd be, it'd be my bike riding. I mean, I, I thought I could ride as well as anyone in the world over 40 or 90K, but I just didn't think I knew enough about how to prepare for a 112-mile time trial. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd never done it before, really, so it was, you know, it was breaking new ground for me, and I thought, you know he'd be a good ally to have and obviously being Lance's old coach I thought if anyone can you know, give me some tips and tell me what kind of training is required for that kind of a bike ride he'd be the man and you know I think it was a pretty good partnership I, I'd already written my program for Cone and I said to him you know at the time I think it was only 10 weeks out from the race I said you know I don't really want to change too much in fact I don't, I don't want to change anything but 
I'd love you to have a look at what I'm doing and give me some feedback. And, you know, to his credit, he said, well, the whole, the whole thing about me approaching you is not really for Kona this year. It's about going forward into the future. You know, there's not a lot I can do in the next month or two that's going to change anything. So um, he had a look at the program, though, and said, you know, it looked, it looked really good and made a couple of suggestions, which I implemented straight away. And uh, it made a difference. So definitely I felt I handled the ride pretty comfortably in Kona. And I think the main benefits working with Chris will be going forward definitely as I get into this, this sort of pre-season and into next year. I think I'll, I'll, I'll see the benefits of his expertise for sure. So on the training side of things, as an athlete, are you training more like an Olympic distance athlete or are you actually kind of doing Ironman volume nowadays? Um, you know, it's a bit of both. I mean, last year I did. I always... Now that we don't have a series in Australia, I usually spend just January, February, March doing sort of laying down a good base because, um, you know, I, I sort of race a six or seven month season, so you need a pretty good base to, to do that. So I, um, I normally don't do anything too specific. I just do, I do a lot of mileage, not too much, but I, I do more mileage than normal in January, February, March um, and basically just concentrate on strength and endurance, not too much speed work and... But towards March, as we get into March, I'll start doing more specific brick sessions, like running off the bike as I'm getting closer to the season. And uh, But then, I, I mean, I did a normal sort of season this year. I, I did, I think I did 12 races, and three of them were Olympic distance, two Ironmans, and the, and the rest were halves. So, I mean, from, from April onwards, it was pretty much just normal training, Olympic distance training, because my main objective early in the season was lifetime fitness in Minnesota, which is an Olympic distance race. So I just did my normal sort of training for that. And uh, I feel that when I'm really fit for an Olympic distance non-drafting race, that's that's when I'm in my best shape for half as well. So I don't think the training changes too much between those two types of races. So in a, in a normal season, I'll, I can just interchange between Olympic distance and half Ironman racing without it, without having to change the training at all. And then from that, I sort of <clears throat> I did Minnesota, then two halves in a row, Ironman, and, and then you 70.3 up in Canada had a week off and went straight into the Ironman prep for Kona and you know I, I felt that, that that short course season helped me with the Ironman preparation because I you know I started the preparation very fit and even on my long rides and long runs I just didn't feel slow I had that speed in my legs from a whole season of, of working it and I feel that was a huge asset in the training in the training blocks and, and also in the race itself so I sort of think they go hand in hand. I think a bit differently to everyone else. I don't think you need... I mean, most guys like Macro are specialised in the long distance now. I mean, it was interesting because I, I went to Minnesota and Philadelphia and a few of the Olympic distance races and I was racing Bevan, you know, and Simon Whitfield, Hunter Camper, Greg Bennett. And then I'd go to the halves and race Lessing and Luke Bell and, and Waldo. And then I'd go to the, the Ironmans and race Macker and, you know, Norman and Farris and those guys. So it was always different guys yeah. racing at, at each distance. But... um. I think, you know, it's sort of... I don't think you really need to specialise. I think the Olympic distance side of things, provided you can schedule a season well and not have to overlap and not take too many... You know, not take any shortcuts when it comes time to actually doing the mileage for the Ironman. I think the short course, and you know, the benefits you get with your VO2 max and just the top-end speed actually helps with the preparation for Ironman and with the race itself, so... And I, um, I guess it also helps the bank balance as well because the reality is if you're trying to do, um, you know, just do Ironmans, it's, you know, you've only got two or three cracks a year and if you don't win all three you know, or, or place very high, it is hard to make a living, isn't it, out of just being an iron distance athlete unless you're someone like Macca. I agree. I agree 100%. I, think, I mean, even Macca, you look, I mean, it's taken him seven years to win in Kona. So, 
Mm. I mean, you can win Port Macquarie as many times as you want, you're going to get $7,000, yeah. you know. So, yeah. I mean, there's Olympic distance races in America that have twice that. Yeah. Um, I think I think if you're trying to make a living in Ironman racing, I mean, you've got to get sponsorship. Otherwise, the race you need to win. But, I mean, that being said, I, yeah, and that harks back, I think, to the days in France. It just it taught you to be professional back in those days. You had to race. And, I mean, obviously, I don't I only race 10 or 12 times a year now, but I think that all comes from that menta- mentality that I got back then as being a professional athlete. Like you say, you've got to race to make a living. And also, uh, you know, I want my sponsors to get value as well. I don't want to get, dis- you know, I don't want to disappear for six months. Yeah, and um, you know, I want to be visible all the time, and, and that's why I always I always chase the big races like Minnesota or St Croix or Kona. They're the races that I try and stack the schedule with. They're the ones that get all the media coverage, and I think they're the ones that are most valuable to the sponsors. And obviously, if they're the bigger races, they're going to have the biggest prize purses as well. So, um, but yeah. Do you think um, now that you've, you know, you're, you're amazing Kona race, you know, some up, like, phenomenal, do you think now Kona kind of comes your priority for the next few years? Well, no doubt. It's the race I want to win the most now. I mean, I've been very lucky in my career. I've been blessed, really, the last five years, six years in the U.S. I've pretty much won everything that I've wanted to win. I've won Lifetime and had a couple of podiums there. I've won Chicago a couple of times, won St. Croix two or three times, won the World Half Ironman champ. So, you know, I've as I said, I've been really lucky. Had a very good career there, and Kona's. I think it's the Tour de France of, of triathlon, and obviously that was, as I mentioned before, the race that started me on this path. Seeing Welshie win, and um, it's definitely a race I'd love to win at some stage, and yeah. it'll it'll be my main race for the next, for the rest of my career for sure. I mean, I'd never even been there to watch the race before this year, so oh, really? wow. yeah, I was am- I was amazed at the hype and the media and the atmosphere, and it was. Um, it was an amazing week the whole week leading up to it. And, it'll, be, it'll be interesting going back next year because there probably wasn't much pressure on you this year, but next year... Uh, well, you know what? Yeah, I guess there's always pressure, though, because, I mean, I think this year, half, I didn't read all the pre-race predictions, and but, you know, obviously you hear about them, and a lot of people picked me to win, and the other half picked me not even to finish. So <laughs> I guess there's the pressure from the half who think you're going to win, you don't want to let them down, and yeah. then there's the pressure to prove the other people wrong. So, <laughs> and also, I mean, the pressure from yourself... I. I knew what I thought I was capable of and, and what I expected. And, I mean, I've, I've raced Macker a lot, and I raced him twice this year, early in the year, and beat him both times. I beat him by nearly four, over five minutes in St. Croix, which is a pretty tough half man racing similar conditions to what Kona's running. And, I mean, he finished second in Kona last year, so I thought, even though I know a half's a lot different to an Ironman, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm in the ballpark if I can just get my preparation right. So I had that pressure on myself thinking, you know, the onus is on me not to stuff it up and, and to try and prepare properly. And, and I think I did my homework pretty well. You know, I'm pretty good mates with Welshie, so I, I rung him a lot and I spoke to Dave Scott a lot. I was up in Boulder and I'd see him at the pool nearly every day. So I was firing questions at him and, you know, they were all really generous with their time and helped me out a lot. And uh, I, I think the main pressure I felt was from myself, really, because I, I felt that, I mean, you never know with that race. Obviously, history's shown that. I mean, I think only four or five people. I think only four people, including myself, now finished on the podium and in their guess, debut. I yeah. think Luke's the only Luke's the only one who's won it. So, and you know, history shows that even the great ones, like I mean, Paula was about to win her seventh time there, and she collapsed 400 metres from the finish. So, mm. if someone who's won it six times, if it can still be baffling them, then it can certainly baffle a rookie. So, so you know, you- I was. How were you pacing Sorry. yourself out there on the day? Were you just sort of working off other people or were you really just doing your thing on, on the bike and, and obviously on the run as well? Were you doing your thing or were you looking at the others? Well, I think 
it's a bit of both, you know. Obviously, you've done an IMED, so you know you've got to concentrate on yourself to make sure you're getting the fuel in and you're drinking enough, and so you've got to sort of be on top of that. But I was, I was taking that in my competition, and I mean, I've raced all those guys countless times, so I know all their strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, I, I just devised the game plan before before the race. And um, that being said, I had a few backup plans as well. You know, I was pretty much prepared for anything, but. Uh, I think my plan was I felt that I was the best runner there, so I, I thought if I was going to have a good race or a competitive race, I was going to do it in the run. Yeah. Um, that being said, I got into probably the best bike shape of my life as well. And it was actually interesting because for the first time in my career, I had an SRM on, and that was at Chris's, um, Chris instigated that. He got me to put an SRM on, so I trained with an SRM the last eight weeks and did all the threshold testing and, and whatever at his, at his office. And so the whole ride I was watching, and I was well below... The watts I, was, I think I averaged 285 watts for the whole ride, and um, so that was a, you know fairly well below what I'm capable of doing. So the whole ride that was giving me confidence, knowing that I, firstly that I was riding with most of the contenders pretty comfortably, and secondly that I was doing it so well below threshold that I'd have a lot left in the yep. tank for the run. So mm-hmm. the further the race progressed, the more confidence I got from that. And um, yeah, I mean my, my plan was I was watching the other guys, and <clears throat> interestingly, I, was, I think I was the only guy. I was the only pro guy in the race who didn't wear an aero helmet. So I just wore a normal helmet. I thought it would be important to keep my core potty temperature pretty low and, and, you know, the cooling effect of just pouring the water on my head. And, um, yeah, so I was, I was definitely watching the other guys, particularly in our group. We had a couple of guys off the front. Liado and Simbali were off the front. And then that front group I was in after the swim was about 25. But I think by the time we got off the bike, there was only seven or eight of us left. And, um yeah, I was, just, I was keeping an eye on everyone else, seeing who looked good, who looked hot, and uh, but essentially my my plan was was what it was, and um, it sort of it went to plan. The race went to plan. I thought I'd be able to ride comfortably with that group, and then see what what happened in the in the run. And um, obviously, the run was where it was going to be won or lost. And I mean, that was definitely a huge learning experience for me because I'd never run a hard marathon. I'd only done one Ironman, which was early early in the year, and I'd never really run a marathon hard. So. So, okay, tough question. You're, you're um, on Mecca's toes pretty much the whole run. Did it break your heart when you kind of knew he wasn't you were going to get him at the end, or were you still just kind of thinking, "Bugger, I've made you know this is an amazing race." Um, a bit of both. I think when you're so used to winning, it does break your heart. That being said, second still a great result. I think yeah, yeah. I've never judged my races by where I finished. If I got to the end and thought, "Well, I did everything I could," and someone was just better on the day, well, so be it. Yeah. The races that bugged me, the ones even if I won them, where I thought I didn't race as well as I could have, or um, so that's how I've always judged it. It's funny because it's so emotional, you know, in the race. It's such a big race, and there's kind of that relief to have it over and done with too. So I think what bugged me in hindsight was just I second guessed myself a, a few times through the marathon. I think Chris knew his only chance to beat me was to, to get out front, and he's a good front runner. He, he races on confidence and. I mean, that was probably the first time he's beat me in five or six years, and you know, some would argue that's that's the only one worth worth winning, and it probably is. So, but every time we've run shoulder to shoulder, I've, I've been able to get on get the best of him in the run. And I think his plan was to have a quick transition and get out, and that's what he did. And he had twenty odd seconds on me, twenty five seconds out of transition, and that that straight away put the doubt in my mind. I think he knew being being a rookie and being there my first time, I'd have those doubts of how to run the marathon, and and I did. And I, I think he. He knew that, and, and to his credit, he played on that, and, and he had a great day too. I mean, he ran a 2:42 marathon, yeah. so. Yeah. Um, but I think he did sort of bluff me a little bit because when we got to the finish, I think he was in a fair worse state than I was. So, 
that being said, I, I didn't know how many bickies I could spend and get to the finish. Yep. So there was always it's in the back of my mind. Yeah. yeah, I had to be a little conservative because I did not want to finish. I didn't want to get to 35K and, and you know, pass out. So... <laughs> And, and just with regards to the relationship with Mecca, I know that when we were the first year I was over in France, you know, Mecca came to town shortly after I got there, and there was some fairly serious training going on, but you were obviously very good mates with him back then. Um, I mean, has that changed now that you are sort of fairly, not bitter rivals, but you're, you know, Competitors. You're, you're going one-two in Kona. Has it changed much since then? Uh, it's definitely changed. I think, you know, I mean, back in those days, in 98, I'd only been in the sport a handful of years, and he'd been doing it. We'd come through the junior ranks, and um, I think he represented Australia at the World Juniors one year, and so he was pretty much already well established by then. And um, I was coming up through the ranks, obviously, as I got better, and then as I started beating him, things changed, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there's a, a mutual respect there bet- between the two of us. Um, I wouldn't say we're the best of mates, but I mean, obviously, things are going to change. He's trying to win that race, and he's been trying to win it for the best part of a decade now, and. Um, I think he was genuinely happy for me after the race. I think he was just happy that he'd won, and I think he was happy for me that I'd had a good race on debut. So um, things will probably change next year, I guess. Uh, he'll probably see me as one of his main obstacles. Yeah, totally. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure he saw me as that this year. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously we are rivals now. and We're certainly not, to answer your question, we're, we're not the friends we used to be, definitely. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, things change. You get older and you yeah. have families. and, and yeah, Life experiences, eh? Yeah, mm. and so just in terms of the coverage you guys got back in Australia, obviously one, two, and the and the guys did it did it register much on the radar and the the major media? I think it did. I, I was getting a few emails from back home um, from people who said they saw it on the the national news at night and also on the morning shows pretty much throughout that week. They were talking about it, and I think it made most of the ma- major newspapers and it was on the radio and stuff. So I think it did crack into the sort of the major public consciousness for a little while but um, I think the thing with our sport is yeah, we've got to continually try to do that if we want to you know, sort of break back into the mainstream um, I, I think that race has always got some coverage, particularly because Welsh won it in 94, so I mean Australians are aware of it yep. and as they're aware of the Olympics now too because I mean obviously the first Olympic triathlon was in Sydney so um, it's kind of funny, though, when you think, I mean, you think of that day in Sydney, what a great day it was, and I guess a good advertisement for the for the sport. If anything was going to kickstart the sport in Australia, you would have thought that that would be it. Yep. And uh, I guess it's sad now to, to, you know, be seven years down the track from that and not have a national series anymore. But, I mean, some of the big races still get ma- major media, and, and Hawaii's one of those. So, I mean, it was good in that regard. So what do you what do you think the sport needs to do? I think it needs to get new administration in Australia to start oh, with. Nice. <laughs> um, not wanting to be too controversial, but I mean, Johnny knows I'm going to speak my mind. I always do, but I just think it's, it's all on good to, to groom people for, to win gold medals. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you have, if you're running the sport, you, you have a duty to all the, you know, to future generations coming through and have sort of programs in place to help the young kids who might be going to this Olympics, but might be going to the next one or the one after that. Yeah. You know, it's, all, it's all well and good it's to have insight. to be a high performance manager and have a contract through to the end of '08. But what happens after that? Mm. You know, what what happens after that when you know someone you know these people move on to greener pastures and you know everyone else is left holding the bag. So I just think you know, and and to be honest, the medals that we've won at the Olympics, um, the two silvers we got with the girls, they didn't really come through. They had nothing to do with the national coach or the program anyway. They McKeeley obviously lives in San Diego and her husband coaches her. 
and she's always marched to her own beat anyway, so she just came in and won the silver, and it was the same with Loretta. She didn't really come through the program either. She trained with Siri Lindley in Boulder, and um, so all the results that we've we've had pretty much at the major championships, and I, I guess it's the same with Emma Snowsall. She She's in Boulder now. Obviously, Craig's her partner and her coach, and he coaches her, and they don't have a lot to do with the, the national system. So, you know, I think being in Boulder and hanging out with Bevan and also Hamish before he retired, Hamish was in Boulder um, last year, I think you guys have got it dialed in over there, you know, Stephen. I don't know too much, and I don't want to say too much and ruffle any feathers, but he seemed to have the system. Stephen Farrell came over, and he just basically checked on the boys and made sure they're all right. And he didn't, you know, he knew, you know, they're not high school kids anymore. You know, they're guys in their late twenties and thirties who've who've got to the top, doing what they do best and knowing how to prepare themselves. So I think he just gave them free reign to do that. But you know, just popped over to see if they needed anything and then let them go on their merry way. Um, whereas I think the Australian model is just to try and control everyone. You know, you've got to come into camp, you've got to do this, you've got to come to Europe for eight weeks a year, you can't bring your family, and that's going to scare a lot of people off. Because, um, as I said, we're not 20 anymore. Mm. You know, yeah. everyone has wives and kids. And yeah. um, I think at the end of the day, the, the only thing is, if, if, if you're the national coach or whatever, your only MO is to get the best guys there. That's it. Yeah. By whatever means. You just want the best people on the start line. So... Um, I think people tend to complicate things that are pretty simple, really. But anyway, that's my opinion. Nice, we well, like it. I don't think we're, we're 100% on track in New Zealand, but we're certainly doing some good things, which is always nice. Hey, yeah. We just wanted to get some, some tips whether you might have any in terms of, because it was your first time in country. Because you are the legendary first-timer. <laughs> first-timer extraordinaire. <laughs> for just for, for any athletes that might be going to Kona, any sort of things that perhaps you didn't get told about that you think, oh, I wish I'd known that in terms of the, perhaps the course or the conditions, any, any sort of real insightful tips you might have? Well, I think just... I mean, it's known for the brutal conditions. Just mentally be prepared for for very a lot of wind and, and you know a large amount of heat and humidity. And then anything less than that will be a bonus. So um, that being said, I think the last three years have been pretty good. I, speaking to a couple of the boys in the drug test afterwards, they said this year was hotter than the last couple of years and a little bit windier, but certainly not as windy as it can get there. So I think you just need to be mentally prepared for for tough conditions. And then anything less than that, you know, will be will be a bonus for you and. I think the last week, just, it's, it, there's a lot of hype and it's an amazing atmosphere. I just, you've got to stay off your feet as much as possible, I think, and just just um, try and build up your energy reserves because it's, it's a tough day. It's a tough day. Um, and I think just do your homework too. I mean, I'm no expert. Obviously, I've only done one really, but I think you've got to get your nutrition dialed in, particularly in those conditions. Your body has different requirements in the heat and humidity than it might have in, say, even a, a dry heat or a dry climate. So I think just uh, ask around and get as much advice as you can and um, and then just test your plan. You've got to test your nutrition in training in a brick session, so a, sort of a, a simulated race session, and that's the best advice I can give. There you go. Tips from the Premier first-timer. Hey, one other question I had there that you just mentioned um, about drug testing. How often would you typically get drug tested in a year? It varies. It's, it's always you know, quite a few um, occasions. I think this year I've been tested probably eight or nine times. Okay, I remember good. there was one. There was one stint in Australia there where I think I did. I was back home for six months. So I was back home for about 24, 25 weeks. I think I got tested 18 times. So oh. I got tested three times in eight days once. I won. <laughs> I won the Australian Sprint Chance. I got. A, I had a blood and urine test on the Sunday at the, straight after the race, and then. 
I got called in the next day for an out of competition. <laughs> so I, I had to give um, urine the next day, and then the following weekend I won the Australian Long Course Champ, so I got blood and urine again. Um, yeah, so they were pretty strict. You know, they're, they're pretty diligent in Australia. They turn up at your house or at your training, and it varies. Obviously, I think it goes in waves. They, they pick a sport, and then they hammer that sport for a few months. And um, But uh, even in the U.S., you know, I get... But all the major races, they have testing, and <clears throat> I got a couple of out-of-competition tests as well. They turned up in Boulder at our apartment at 6 o'clock, which was nice one morning. It's not like if they wait till 8, there's going to be any difference. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. That's what you think. Hey, um, as an athlete, you know, you're, you're pretty experienced in all the rest of it. What do you see as your own personal strengths as an athlete? Um... You know, if, if you were to, you know, someone write a book about you, what would be the things that you think that is to really... Use? I think I'm, I'm pretty well-rounded in all the three disciplines. You know, to win the big races, you can't really have any weaknesses. I think you've got to be, you've got to be good in all disciplines. And um, I think you've got to have a major strength you need as an athlete is you've got to have a good support network behind you. you know, I'm fortunate to have my wife and my baby daughter, Lucy's two and a half, and they travel with me everywhere, so... Yeah. You know, whilst triathlon is an individual sport, you're kidding yourself if you think, you, you know, it doesn't matter if you're trying to win races or just trying to finish them, you know, as you guys can probably attest, you know, you need that support behind you mm. just to get to the start line in one piece. So I think that's important. And I think a mental strength as well, which comes from, I guess, your development as, as you're growing up in the sport. I think that's that would be one of my strengths. I think I've... I think, I, you know, I'm, I'm just mentally... I, I always give a good account of myself in every race. You know, I never... I always, I always sort of race to whatever level of form I'm in, and um, I never saw myself short that way. So I think just uh, I'm fairly mentally tough, but I think that comes with how you developed in the sport. And as we mentioned, that was my development was coming up racing a lot and, and racing better guys and older guys, and I think that's an important part of any young athlete's development. Nice. Hey, and obviously we want to make sure we give some exposure for your wonderful sponsors. So maybe just tell us about your sponsors and, and whether you've got any exciting plans with any of them at the moment. Yeah, well, my sponsors have been really good. I've been I've been with Orca for six or seven years now, and um, I'll probably be with them for the rest of my career. They're, they're a very good company and one that I've really enjoyed working with. They do good shots of you. You do always look. You're, you're, you're fashion, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, who else have I got? I've got Orbea Bikes. Been with them for a few years now. Um, signed a couple of good good deals since Kona, American Interbank, who are a mortgage-broking nice. firm in, in the U.S. Just signed on with Newton Running Shoes. You guys have probably heard of them. They're a new yeah, yeah, running yeah. shoe and um, pretty innovative. Danny Abshire is a podiatrist to sort of develop this shoe. And uh, I'm pretty cynical when it comes to all that uh, performance-related equipment. And um, I love those shoes, though. I ran in them. From, from the very first run I had in them there, just uh, they're an amazing shoe. They're very light. Even the training shoe is very light, but they I don't know what the material is they use in the sole, but they seem to afford more shock absorption than even a heavier shoe. So yeah. Newton are a, a shoe a company I'm with now. Nice. Um, Tri-Buys online. Nice. Tri-Buys. Tri-Buys. We love Tri-Buys. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, a great, they're a great bunch of guys and um, love the sport of Truff and they're really motivated guys. So they're... Yeah. they're you're writing a bit of a, you're writing the odd article up on the site and a bit of an update every now and then on trybuys.com. I've written one. I think yeah. I should I should get to work. I promised the boys more than that. But um, 
I wrote, I wrote one. It's pretty long, though. It'll take, it'll take the readers a while to get through. So. <laughs> and I'll work on it. It's exclusive to them, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get on to that. I promised them I'd write at least one every fortnight. So, I'll, um, Came I'm halfway the case, through. I tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm halfway through my second one now, so if you speak to them, tell them it's on the way. It's in the mail. <laughs> You'll be listening to this, mate. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else um, you got on board there? Yeah, I, I ride Zip, Zip Wheels, nice. um, Profile. Handlebars. Oh, let me see. I don't want to forget anyone. Oakley, of course. Nice fashion. Um, let me see. Who else have we got? Who else have we got? I think I've covered the main ones. American Interbank and Newton are the two new major sponsors. Oakley as well. I've just signed on with them. So cool. all great companies and they support me. So uh, I love them. Can't thank them enough. Love them. Good. Well, um, thanks so much for spending so much time with us today. We're going to ask for that. Oh, yeah, plans for 08 is, is pretty similar to this year and, and sort of Kona and, and similar race structure? Yeah, I think I'll pretty much follow a similar blueprint. You know, I'll um, have a full short course season and, and try and squeeze as many halves in as I can. And uh, I always like to do, I mean, St. Croix has been a staple of mine. I, I love that race, St. Croix, and I always do St. Anthony's. And um, I did Vineman this year, which is a great race. I'll go back and do that. Uh, but, yeah, Kona will be the main focus, I think. Oh, I'll do Lifetime as well in July. But um, Kona's, I think, the, oh. the one I want, I want to win. So it'll, I guess the whole season will be geared around that one. Craig, when, uh, when John has a question, he puts his hand up next to me. And uh, <laughs> he just put his hand up, so I think he has a question for you. One more question. <laughs> one of the topics we've got on the show this week is um, whether there should be an easier, not an easier way, but a way to get other pros into Kona. You know, someone yeah. like Greg Bennett or Bevan Doherty or Hamish Carter. Do you think there should be any other angle guys can get in there other than doing Ironman races, which they have to do at the moment? Uh, yeah, I think there should. I mean, I got in by winning Clearwater, which was a half. Um, but uh, that being said, I guess you've got to win a world title to get into another one, so that's pretty tough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the only. I think that's the only non-Ironman event by which pros can can qualify. But I, I think I think so. I think. I mean, back in the day. Certainly when I first started in the sport, I used to read. I don't even think Chicago had slots for the pros right. um, and Olympic distance races. I know St. Croix definitely did. And, but, yeah, I, I think they should be. I mean, I think it would mix it up a bit. And I mean, not every short course guy is going to be suited to it, but I think certainly guys like Bevan and, I mean, Hamish would have. I mean, all the guys who are good all-round athletes would definitely would definitely do well there. There's no question. I think they would, and I think that would add, add to the race. So... Um, I'd be all for it. So yeah, I, I think they, I think they should. I'm not sure what, why they changed that rule and, and what the argument is for that. But I think they, there certainly should be concessions for the pros. You know, as you said, they're trying to make a living, so mm. that obviously means having to race a bit more. And and when you're doing that, that's going to eat into, um, you know, doing another. If you wanted to do another Ironman in a year, that'd eat into your schedule. Mm. Obviously, with the, the, the preparation and then the recovery from that. So uh, I think singing if, off if, the same song sheet. Oh, that's good, mate. That's a good yeah. metaphor. Should be writing songs, mate. I should think. You're a profession. Back yeah. this coaching business. Anyway, yeah, thanks heaps for spending yeah, so much mate. time awesome. with us today. And, um, Love your honesty. Next year, we'll be looking forward to doing an interview sometime after the race with the 2008 world champion. Bring it on. And, um, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> and uh, have a good summer, and we'll um, yeah, hopefully catch up with you some stage next year. Yeah, oh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was good to chat. Good. Cheers, cool. mate. Sponsors. So... 
First of all, we have tribos.com, and I've been just on their website there and just checking out some specials, and I really think if you're looking to get some triathlon gear, it's actually a good time of year to get it if you're in your winter season, because you can set up for your summer season, get all your good gear really, really cheap while you're getting last year's stock, and then when it comes time to actually get out and do it, you're going to be fine. So get on Tribos right now, check out their sales page, it's, you know, it's just full of really good gear, you can get your bike gear, you can get your swim gear, you can get your run gear, if you want to do an exterior event, kind of an off-road event in the off-season, you know, definitely look at getting your exterior event stuff there as well. They've got the top brands at great prices. Remember, international shipping, anything over $500 US, you get free shipping. And within the US, if you spend $200, you get free shipping as well. So it's a no-brainer. Coffees of Hawaii. We love Coffees of Hawaii. And just kind of thinking if Albanade is going to be coming down to Epic Camp. I'm not sure if he is. I'm pretty sure he isn't. But I think John's trying to con him in. And if he does a Mark Petrofessor like he did last year, Mark last year basically decided the week before Epic he was going to come, so we might be able to con old Albert to come down to Epic Camp New Zealand. It'll be good because I'm hoping he's delivering the coffee even if he's not going to be there in the coffee we're on on Epic Camp because last year I was loving that vanilla. He like vanilla coffee. I can't remember what it was, but it was bloody good. So <laughs> that's going to be my Epic Camp saviour because my base training isn't quite there. So remember, Coffees of Hawaii, it's really, you know, they're great at supporting triathlon. They're getting out, they're supporting lots of pros, young pros, and just putting their money back into the sport. And we love them, so support them as well. And lastly, we have athlinks.com. Now, one thing athlinks, Andrew sent me through an email this week just saying how they've innovated on their results page. And if you go to a results page, you have your normal results, but you can click on a section which says advanced results and it's and what they're doing is really great they can basically categorize your different results for years um, different categories that you can have it under so go on there and check out what they're doing with the results page once again it's like every week they send us through a new email telling us about innovation and I think one thing to be aware of is if you've gone on athletes in the past in the early days and it wasn't really your thing I really think it's a good idea to get on there and actually check it out again because just the innovation they're doing is making it really, 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 it can become a really important tool in your training kind of life. So definitely check that out. So it's athlinks.com. And remember when you're on there, click on an ad because you must make him some money while you're there. So they are coffeesofhawaii.com, trybuyers.com, and athlinks.com. Next week, we're back to our normal show. We're going to be having our interview of Mark Allen that I talked about last week. We interviewed him two weeks ago and... A good little interview. He's got a book coming out. He talks about that a little bit and uh, some of his other stories that he's kind of got from his life. He's an interesting man, actually. He's interesting to talk to about the mental game. Um, and then the rest of that, yeah. I hope you had a great New Year. I went out and uh, spent the night with my partner and we, we watched the New Year's Under the Stars. So it was all loved up and oh, it was beautiful. Other than that, that's pretty much it. We got Well, I'm actually recording this before we do Wanaka, so... Um, I've got one more big run to do next Monday. I'm going to do a three-hour run on Monday. And then that gives me maybe 10 days before the race to kind of taper. Probably not ideal, but I think I just want to knock out a three-hour, or close to three hours, close to the race. Um, other than that, not much happening. I've been watching Battlestar Galactica. Sam Ian gave me the series, Battlestar Galactica. I don't know if you guys have been watching it, but it's pretty bloody awesome. I don't. You see, I don't have a TV, so I've been watching it on uh, my laptop occasionally, and I'm about halfway through the second series, and apparently the last series finishes in about six months in the states and it's, it's apparently it's absolutely amazing so i've been enjoying it it's kind of my little kind of geeky thing that i've been doing right now so if you're enjoying Battlestar galactica as well give me an email because i want to i want to feel the Battlestar love anyway that's this week's show we'll be back to normal next week thanks so much for uh listening to the interviews throughout this period of the year and bring on 2009 i say i am russ i am Mendo. 
Train hard, train smart, kia kaha.